Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So, what is astonishing you? There is a story out of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Jefferson County, your hometown. My hometown. Yep. Uh, and where I lived for six years, where I went to seminary. Uh, but there's a, a story that has gotten some national attention about a bus driver uh, named Larry Farish. Yes, I think that's his name. Um, I've seen his picture. He, he's an African-American young man. I don't think he is over 25. He's a fairly young man. And, um, and as a matter of fact, I actually drove a school bus uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, after seminary for a couple of years uh, while I was waiting for my first uh, call to a church. But anyway, Larry was picking up his students as normal, and he has this one child named Levi, six years old, that he is especially close to, fond of, and they both love Spider-Man. And so every morning they do the Spider-Man hand sign. Mm. And uh, one morning, uh, last week, Larry went to pick him up, and he noticed that Levi, he had his head down, he didn't speak, didn't do the Spider-Man sign, and just noticed that, you know, the kid was really sad, and asked him, uh, you know, what was the matter, and, and Levi said, it's, it's pajama day, and I don't have any pajamas. And so Larry went to Target, bought the kids some pajamas, brought them to the school, and um, made his day. And it's a simple story, just a simple story of kindness. And yet, when I heard it, I cried. When I heard it, I thought, this, this is the kind of story that is easily dismissed. It's pajamas for a six-year-old six kid. But in light of Jesus teaching about the kingdom being mustard seed, the mm -hmm. kingdom being small and yet grows into something astonishing, in the face of war that we hear about in Palestine, in um, uh, Ukraine, um, in this season of politics that we're in with this upcoming election and how mean-spirited it can be um, in light of social media controversi co controversies. I, I read something uh, the other day that said, if you want your YouTube channel to, go, to grow, what you need to do is find another channel that does something similar to what you're doing that has more followers and then find a reason to pick a fight with them. Like that's how you grow mm -hmm. your channel. In light of that, this kind of story is especially powerful, this small act of kindness. And I think the church is so easily seduced in these days by the lure of power and privilege and uh, wanting so much to be a, a player and have influence in this society that we will give in to those forces that say, okay, yes, you've got to be aggressive. You need to, uh, there, there are only, there are good guys and bad guys. And, um, you know, the, the next time Jesus comes, it's all about punishing the, you know, mm -hmm. right. 
Um, and this is just a different way to live, a different way of seeing and being in the world. And I think we are blind to the power of it. Yeah, I think it really does. Um, I think there are sometimes there are things that we think we're too important and too good to bother with. And so yeah. I think that's the sense of like knowing that whoever we are, we have a sphere of influence and feeling like, well, there's something that is within my power to do, but because normally it won't make the news. Um, and I, and I can't help but be a little bit, um, negative and say how sad I am that this is something so remarkable that it does make the news. Right. I mean, that, that it's not the kind of thing that happens all the time in all kinds of places so that, you know, that's what makes a community. That's what makes a flourishing spiritual fruit bearing community. Right. And I think that, I think you're right to say in the context of moving up into another election cycle, you know, where it's just really easy to say that the only thing that has power are are po politics that are connected to um, extant government structures instead of understanding that, you know, everything we do at all times is a political choice. It's, a, it's something that's forming the polis, the city that we're in. And so it's a matter of, you know, when you drive down the road, how do you interact with the person standing on the street corner? If someone is having a crisis, do you stop to listen, whether that's someone you know or someone you don't know, or do you pre-decide that it's not your problem or there's nothing you can do about it? And I, So I think just to be able to say, you know, this young man knew that someone he had formed a relationship with had a need and it was his joy to meet that need you know that's that's a flourishing that's that's flir that's shalom mm -hmm. and um so i think it's really beautiful and it, it it's something you know so many people feel so powerless and being able to say like we do have power we just need to understand that it's a power that the dominant culture often doesn't see, doesn't acknowledge, or, you know, um, promotes it as a sort of fluff, puff story. But, you know, for that little boy and that young man, that is a worldview-forming encounter. And it is a reminder for me as a preacher and as a follower of Jesus that we hear the words of Jesus, the parables, the stories Jesus told, and we've heard them so long and so many times that um, sometimes I wonder if <laughs> if they have the kind of impact they're intended to. I mean, this is as simple as, you know, Jesus saying, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, that will that will be rewarded, or the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Like those those words, those things that we know in our heads are, they are deceptively, deceptively simple. Well, I think a lot of times we hear them through the additional layer of the culture that we live in. And so when you hear, give a cup of cold water, immediately you'll hear also, but what about, you know, 
in Appalachian country where they, you know, the water is currently polluted and what about in Eritrea? And instead of saying like those are real things and, and it's not that we shouldn't have conversations or be engaged in certain ways, but here's a person who's right in front of you. Um, and I, and the, you know, so I just think being able to be live with a kind of overwhelming vulnerability to the reality that the Holy Spirit is involved in your daily choices and interactions and believing in, you know, the God who took the gift of the five loaves and two fishes and multiplied it so that there was more than enough for everyone who was there that day and being able to make small gestures and love, believing that A, they matter in and of themselves and in the hope that God is the same today, yesterday and tomorrow. And so in a way that will glorify God and not you, they might unlock a different reality in another way. I mean, that's just really important. And I do think despair and rage are major weapons of the enemy of our soul because then it we are taught, you know, that teaches us to turn inward, to move in our life through protection, to be very self-focused and, you know, to not, to not engage. Um, so, so what's astonishing you? Um, well, <laughs> what is astonishing me is on the other end of the spectrum, <laughs> I guess. Um, there's a, a story that people, I need to pull it up on my computer so I don't get any of the names wrong. Um, there's a, a young man um, who this past week, um, his name is Aaron Bushnell. And um, just this past week on Sunday afternoon, he went to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. He is a, um, a, he wasn't even a veteran. He was an active member of the Air Force. And um, he wanted to protest the um, Israel-Hamas war in Gaza and particularly wanted to draw attention to the way that the United States, I mean, is a major player in that war. Um, I think it's, it's kind of easy for us as Americans to think, think, well, whatever I think about this, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with me because it's between Israel and Palestine or Israel and Hamas. Um, but the reality is multiple times the United Nations has tried to pass legislation calling for an immediate ceasefire and it's the and it's the United States who's vetoed that. And also um, the United States gives more direct military and foreign aid to Israel than to any other nation in the world. And I think from what I've read, if not all, the vast majority of all of the weapons and equipment that the Israeli government is using to prosecute this war is manufactured and purchased from the United States. So some people who understand geopolitics better than I do say, look, this is actually a proxy war. Like the United States is fighting this war against um Palestine, Hamas, however you want to phrase that. And so 
I, I think Aaron Bushnell as a person um, who was raised on a Christian, in a Christian compound um, that actually has um, was, was quite unique. And some people who have come out of that compound have dis- described it as being a very abusive, like hierarchical high control situation. And he's left that compound and, and people who have left that compound say like their experience of being, um, a vulnerable member of that compound. A lot of people who have left have become very active in um, justice causes because they've had this lived experience of what it's like to have no, t- to be overwhelmingly controlled by powerful forces and not having any agency. Um, and and I think you know he he left that compound, joined the military, and then um, began to you know, really question whether the military was what he understood it to be when he joined um, and and felt from all accounts like very personally responsible for what was happening to the Palestinian people, not only because he was an American, but because he was an American military personnel. And um, he, he, in an act of nonviolent protest, although I don't know if we can call it nonviolent, but he he self-immolated. So he um, released a live stream of himself. He, he doused himself in some kind of flammable liquid and set himself on fire. And he left a statement. Um, I'm trying to see if I can read it. Um, and, but es- essentially saying that he, he wanted to draw attention to like the helplessness and despair of the people in Palestine who are being relentlessly bombed and have nowhere to go. Like they can't, they cannot flee. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, so, so I think I, I've been very clear, I hope on this, on this podcast in the past that I have, immense compassion for the Israeli citizens who were attacked on October 7th and that that terrorist attack was brutal and violent and wrong and I condemn it. And the response of the Israeli government, not just to Hamas that launched that attack, but to all of the Palestinian people who live in an area that is controlled by Hamas has been, I mean, by by a literal factor of a hundred, like I think 1200 people were killed on that day and 250 people were taken hostage, men, women, and children, brutally, 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 brutally. And now, 144 days later, I think that the death totals, as reported, are close, are are, are over 10,000 and 70,000 wounded. And because the, the area has been besieged, there's no food, there's no medicine. I mean, it's a desert climate, so there's no potable water. Um, you, I mean, Israel. The Israeli government has has overwhelming 
military force. And so there's been no, there's been no fight. I mean, to say that it, that it's a war implies that there are soldiers fighting back. And I think there's no, I don't know that since October 7th, there have been any in Israel, there've been any casualties because there's no, there's no war, there's no military, there's no military in, in, in Gaza because that's not allowed because they're not a country. (laughs) Um, So, and I, I think also like many Americans and I've even been there, but still was not as educated as, as I should have been in terms of the, the long history going back to the 1940s and the end of world war two and like how Israel came to be came to be and came to be in this particular place in the world and how the Palestinian people um, were, um, you know, just what, what the United Nations decided, what has happened since then, what's happening with settlers and encroaching into land that the United Nations says is Palestinian land that, you know, there's lots of talk about how awful it is when people in Palestine talk about from the river to the sea, we shall one day be free, which implies the end of Israel as a nation and threat, existential threat to all Israelis, which I think is true. And also many Israeli citizens say the same thing from the river to the sea, we shall one day be free. Right. So there really does, there seem, there is a faction in both people groups calling for the total annihilation of the other people group. And I think it's just worth acknowledging that if it's problematic for one of those groups to say that, then it is problematic for both or either of those groups to say that. Otherwise, you are explicitly saying that one group is superior to the other. And so, um, I, but I think what I what I I'm really captive not captivated I'm I'm I am astonished as I think was the intent of Aaron Bushnell and this act of self-immolation is meant to be a an extreme act of agony and compassion um and I think I want to be clear I think it's a tragedy. Um, I, I think that we are called to lay down our lives. I don't think that we are called to that kind of self-harm and self-violence. I, I don't. Um, and I'm interested in people's reactions to it. Um, and it's not, I mean, there is a tradition, albeit a very small one, of people of faith self-immolating to protest um, really the military industrial complex of different nations. Um, And I think, um, I think it's interesting. And we were talking about this on Tuesday that within the Christian tradition, we are very comfortable with the idea of Christians in an act of self-giving love, 
taking up arms and risking their lives to protect their brothers and sisters and by killing enemy threats right like there's an uh, there is and look like there is a tension in being any kind of soldier and being a follower of Jesus and that tension has been just like like sanded away over the centuries but it's there you know it's it's in the heart of the gospel like Jesus told the disciples to put away their swords that those who live by the swords will die by the swords in fairness I also want to point out that there's a point in the passion I think in John where Jesus tells them they need to get a sword so there's some Mm. (laughs) like just the bible is hard um but you know just this idea that we are called um, to lay down our lives, but not to take lives, to pick up our cross and not to crucify others, but to deny ourselves. And that Jesus, you know, that when he's hanging on the cross, he's being taunted about his um, appearance of powerlessness. And he says, do you think that if I wanted, I couldn't call upon my father and he wouldn't send a legion of angel armies to destroy you, but that, you know, that's not my way. And so I think in the early church, people really understood that there was an inherent conflict between taking a life, even to defend your own country. And and so many, the earliest Christians, one of the reasons that they were persecuted by the Roman Empire is because they refused military conscription. And then post-Constantine, there was the sense that people would get baptized, but they would hold their right hand, if they were right-handed, sort of out of the waters of baptism to recognize that their, their hand that held the sword was not grafted into the body of Christ. So every part of me has been washed into the story of Jesus except for my hand that holds the weapon. Because there was this awareness that there's an inherent contradiction between being a follower of Jesus, the Prince of Peace and prosecuting war. And, and so I'm not, I'm not disparaging or standing in judgment against folks who have done military service. And I do understand just the, the sacrifice and the honor and, and certainly the intention of folks who join any branch of the military. I'm just saying that it now in the Christian tradition is you are you are um, seen as um, a heretic if you even suggest if you even name tension between being a member of the military and being a follower of Jesus and and I want to be clear like I have many friends who I deeply remire as followers of Jesus who serve as chaplains who have served in the armed forces like I I'm not. I, I, I'm not standing in judgment. I'm not casting stones. I'm just saying there's a tension between the kingdom of God and the military industrial complex of the largest the, and remaining superpower in the world. And I think there's also just real, there's a real dynamic to name that for many people, the military is the one path to economic stability and cultural honor that exists for disenfranchised and oppressed people in our nation. Um, It it is a literal path to citizenship, except for when somebody chooses to serve and then is still told they're not a citizen. So I, 
like it's just these things are complicated and nuanced and I understand that um but I just think it's interesting that in most churches to to explicitly honor Christians for their military service no one blinks an eye at that like we've grown very comfortable with the idea that it pleases the Lord for people to pick up a weapon and kill enemies but to consider Aaron Bushnell's act, which I also think is in tension with his yoke is easy and his burden is light, right? Like I am not suggesting that anyone should practice self-immolation. I think it's a tragedy. Like it's a tragedy that this young man felt that the only gift he had to give was the destruction of his own flesh that that was the only way that he could make a difference. But I just think it's interesting to notice how we can't even comprehend our faith leading someone to make that kind of choice, which is much more similar to the choice of Jesus delivering himself over to be crucified, but that we have this, this real ease and comfort between the way of Jesus Christ and military service. Um, and I, and I will also say, I think that the people I know who are in the military live and navigate and negotiate that tension all the time. Most of the people who are most deeply offended by naming the tension between following Jesus, the Prince of Peace, blessed are the peacemakers, usually called children of God and being a part of the military forces. The people who are most comfortable naming and talking about and navigating that tension are people who are, Christians and are in the military service like they are not in my experience offended by someone wanting to have a serious conversations a serious and respectful conversation about this but that folks who are are not serving sometimes you know there, there's just a a deep sort of how dare you you know anyway so I'm just I'm thinking about Aaron Bushnell and I'm 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 astonished by what he did and I'm I'm trying to understand what it what it means and what a faithful response is and um, what what it looks like to bear witness to that um, to I think honor the holy despair um, of his suffering with the Palestinian people and also just to note the the horror of the whole context that that led him to that choice and also you know to notice that that was not an act that harmed anyone else um and I read that you know there were police officers who were pointing guns at him while he was setting himself up on fire which I think just says a lot about kind of what what our how, how we're so blinded by violence being the only solution to anything that when a person is literally setting himself on fire the only response of a public safety officer is to point a gun at a anyway so that's I just I'm astonished. I don't really, I'm, I'm about to say something really stupid, but I don't really have any words for it. I know I've just talked nonstop for 10 minutes, but um, yeah, what do you think? When I was a kid, there was a field behind our house and the grass was fairly tall. 
And back in that day, uh, this was early 80s, right? Um, you wore like tube socks that, j that came just you know below your knees. You could not walk through that field without getting some of those uh, sticky burrs on your socks. We Christians should not be surprised that as we go through this world, we find ourselves caught or have systems stuck to us that we find ourselves um, later in disagreement with, right? And, uh, you know, for example, you should not be surprised if you, let's say you were a white Christian in uh, the 60s and you were protesting the segregation of schools, and let's say 20 years later, you look back and see how wrong that was, that you were caught in, uh, you know, the Bible is very clear that there are powers and principalities, and we... You're we, a white Christian who were protesting the desegregation of what schools. What did I say? Right? Segregation. Yes. I just yeah. wanted to be clear. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, yes, you were protesting the desegregation of schools, and uh, you look back 20 years later, and you see that I was so wrong. Well, you, you can be so... Um, so overwhelmed by that reality that you don't know what to do with it, right? You, you, can, um, uh, you can go into self-hatred. With you the reality that you were so wrong. Correct. Right. You, could, um, you can uh, go into just d denial, right? Um, also, can you imagine having been a Christian and... Like a sincere follower of Jesus and a German soldier in the 40s. And then coming out of that and looking back and saying, oh my, I, I was a part of that. Um, and even for myself, recently I went into my local grocery store very happy to pick up <laughs> in February my oranges, my lettuce, my tomatoes, and my bananas, and then go home, turn on the evening news, and see the migrant crisis at the border. So, th so I, I'm, I'm, I'm participating in something. I'm, I'm caught, me, Yolando Hinton, I'm caught in something. I enjoy the privilege of being able to buy oranges in North Carolina in February because we have a system that allows some to come from outside this country who are treated poorly, paid little to nothing, and at the same time, we create a narrative that says, oh, th they are illegals. They are taking over. They do not deserve but we, but we need them for a certain system to keep going. And once I see that, I have to make some choices. Like I can pretend that I don't see it. I can pretend that it's a necessary evil. I can, um, I can feel so ashamed that I self-destruct 
or I can both work to change the system and help those who are victims of it. Yeah. And, but that that's a hard, I, 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 I have deep sympathy for this soldier who felt caught and found no other way than self-destruction. Because I, I imagine that there was a sincere, um, just a very real pain. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting that we, we not plan, because we mm -hmm. never plan anything, <laughs> but that we both brought to this conversation the examples of, of young men responding to the world. And I, I, I think, um, I, I remember being around that age, being in seminary and meeting with a woman who was my spiritual director. And she, for the first time, and it's kind of weird because I think I was in my second or third year of seminary, was like, hey, Kate, your concept of sin is is so individualized, which I think is just, this is the, the water we swim in in America that like, I, I do a sin. So if I were to reach across this table and punch you in the face, that would be me. I, I sinned against you. Yeah. I chose to do it. I did it. I could ask you for forgiveness. I could be, you know, prosecuted for my sin, that, that, but that we understand sin is like a choice that we make to do bad to somebody on purpose. And what this professor, Carrie Doring was her name, was saying, like, you <laughs> need to have a deeper, more mature understanding of sin, which to be clear, me punching you in the face would be a sin. Like sometimes of sin is one action that an individual chooses to do knowing that it is wrong and choosing it anyway. Um, but also she said, and I just remember like just not understand, like hearing the words, but just not understanding because the paradigm shift was too great. And she would say like, but you also need to understand that sin is a web, that, that sin is a web of broken systems and broken relationships and we're all like caught in it. And so some ways that consciously and unconsciously we are sinning against people and, and there are ways in which there's no choice in that. And there's ways when we could do better and we choose not to. And like your understanding of sin needs to be deeper and broader than just, I did a bad thing or he did a bad thing that, and, and I think, you know, now just having lived longer and I do understand that like at the time as a 23 year old, you know, privileged young white woman who really cared about liberation theology, but was still stuck in the sense of like, okay, but I'm going to like, I'm going to make all the ethical right choices from here on out. And I'm going to, get other people to make all the ethical right choices right from here on out. And I, you know, and everything is going to be, uh, you know, me and mine, we're going to change the world. Like the world was just waiting on me and <laughs> I'm here now. <laughs> and, um, you know, and now being a much older and more um, wiser person in the sense of understanding just the, the limits of 
of what in what is possible for an individual and also like what like the limits of moral strength right like i mean to your point about the grocery store like it's not that we couldn't say okay i'm going to never eat anything that's out of season i'm never going to eat anything that wasn't grown within 25 miles of my home like it's possible to make more ethical choices and I only have the moral strength and the moral energy to to do so much and that is not an excuse um and I it's it's a reality it is not an excuse and I think you know that's where so much of this idea, this when the Christian tradition has been shrunk down to fit within the confines of our American culture, and so you say, like, well, sin is only a thing that I do to you, to the person in front of me, and that you are, you know, you do have, it is possible for you to live a completely moral and ethical life. Like sin was something that you did before you met Jesus, but now that you've met Jesus, sin is no longer a factor for you. And so if sin is still a factor for you, then you must not know Jesus anymore. And since that's at stake, I need to shrink my understanding of what sin is so that it becomes something that I can consciously avoid at all times. And so this is why it's very convenient for me as a privileged white person to say the sin, the only sin that really matters is um, not being gay and not voting whatever way and maybe not cheating on my taxes or, or maybe I can cheat on my taxes because the government is funding like whatever I don't believe in. So as to have a, I think a biblical understanding of sin, which is like, look, and here's where our non-dualistic thinking comes you know, we need that, that muscle of being able to say, I've, I have been forgiven of my sins. And yet I still need to pray all the time, Lord, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. And I can remember being in seminary and like teaching, like one of my favorite professors was teaching about that part in Paul where he says, like, I, like, I'm a wretched man. Like, I do not do the thing I want to do. And I don't do the the thing I, I do do the thing I don't want to do. And, you know, and he, he, and, and I remember so concretely my professor who I really liked saying like, all right, now I need to introduce you to this rhetorical concept of X. And so what you can see is that Paul is um, using a rhetorical concept here. And so he doesn't really mean what he's saying. He's doing it for rhetorical affect because of course he is not a person who's still, wow. I know. Right. But I mean, whatever. And I remember at the time being like, I mean, I really like this professor. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'm just an idiot. And I didn't understand Greek rhetoric. And so I didn't understand that this isn't like that, but Paul really has mastered sin and it's not a factor in his life anymore. And so it shouldn't be a factor in my life anymore either. But I can remember that same professor talking to me. It was his last year of teaching. And he was talking about like he and his wife were meeting with their financial people and I remember him talking to us about like we are trying to make ethical investments for our retirement and the truth is it's not possible like it's not possible to invest ethically in the financial construct that we are a part of in the United States of America but he said he said 
that does not release us from the uh, from the obligation to be as ethical as we can, right? And I'm like, okay, now I can look back and go, that's what Paul meant, right? He was saying, I, you know, you have to hold intention that like we are people who have seen the good and we want to choose the good, and we believe that the Holy Spirit gives us the power to choose the good. And also, we are a people who, having seen Jesus, understand and see clearly, like, our own weakness and and grieve it and, and live within that tension of, like, the Lord, the glory of God is revealing itself through the, like, broken clay jar that I am and... Glorify, and that's great because it glorifies God and not me. And also, my flesh and the way that participating in the systems is oppressing and destroying the life of my siblings. Like that will never stop mattering to me. And like, how how do you how do you recognize those two things? And and honestly, not be driven to say what. I think Aaron Bushnell said, which is just the the greatest and the highest thing that I can do for the world is to remove myself from it. Um, and and what I see in and I don't know I don't think anyone really knows whether Aaron Bushnell was a, a a person of faith at the time that he died. I would certainly say that his his the way that he was looking at the world was in alignment with the values of the kingdom of God in the sense that like he couldn't turn away from the suffering of people created in the image of God in Palestine or in Israel. And he couldn't just get over it and, and, and watch the bachelor, right? Like he could, you know, and so I think, but how do we, how do we walk in the freedom and the beauty and the power of Christ that allows us not to live in despair and to feel as though there's there is hope and our choices matter and that you know that it's not that's not the best thing for the world is to remove myself from it. Um, and I yeah, think because most of the time we're given given a form of Christianity that says there there is. Um, there are political points of view, there are political parties, there are uh, issues, there are groups that are right. They are right all day, every day, and we, we leave very little uh, room for the possibility that this way, this thing that we're doing that we believe is so right could actually be wrong. And when we do that, that means there's no room for repentance. There's no room for right. turnaround. There's no room for... Oh, there's there's no room for a da- a Damascus Road moment where I right. thought I was doing the holy work of getting rid of these Christians and you know these heretics, and now I realize that I was opposing the very Messiah that I was waiting for. Like, you know, th- just think about the great turnaround the Apostle Paul had to do, Saul um, had to do uh, on the Damascus Road. As Christians, we should not be surprised at the thing that we, we so, um, the, the cause that we're so fighting for, or the thing that we're standing for, it might be revealed to be wrong. Right, and I think so much of, in America anyway, our understanding of Christianity has been all about like, oh, I'm going to take Jesus 
and use Jesus to cultivate my own righteousness as opposed to, you know, like I, I, I mean, not to sound like Jonathan Edwards, but like there's a wretchedness in me and what I want to cultivate in my life is not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. Cause I think, I mean, we don't talk enough about Damascus road and Paul's experience and like have it in our, in our theological imagination that we could have a Damascus road experience. But the other thing that we don't talk about is like Ananias and the Damascus Christians who took the Saul Paul in and, and we're able to say, look, Saul was opposing the will of God when he was persecuting us. But if we in turn reject or persecute him, then we become Saul. Like we are opposing the will of God because at the end of the day, it's not we're the good guys and they're the bad guys and we want to be righteous and they're unrighteous and like everything will be great if we can just get rid of them. It's what is the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God is the redemption of all creation and all of God's children and the reality is we can be opposed to that like you know Christ won't compel anyone to do anything I don't think but that the reality is if we're opposed to that we're opposed to that not only for for if we're opposed to our enemies coming into the goodness of God then we have become an enemy of God yeah um, this conversation is reminding me of one of my own Damascus Road experiences. Um, very early in my Christian life, I was involved. Before I got involved with any local congregation, I mean, I was a believer, but um, I got involved with this group called the Worldwide Church of God, uh, founded by uh, Herbert Armstrong. Uh, this cult is now called Armstrongism. And uh, they had a, yeah, it's a thing. Um, um, and I think it's officially labeled a cult now. And uh, they had a program on television in the early 80s called, I think it was called The World Tomorrow. But um, I was deeply invested. Like, I remember watching the programs, and then you would call the number, and they would send you these free books, some of the first books I ever read on the Bible and theology were from this group. And I mean, I had, oh, I, I had 15 to 20 of the books and even this man's life story. And, um, you know, there was like this 300 page biography and theology and I mean, I, I was in, and part of their deal, much of their teaching was about um, uh, end-time prophecy, and uh, the U.S. was um, Gog, and Russia was Magog, or something like that, I can't remember, and, and just all of how uh, uh, biblical prophecy was fitting into world events, that was their main thing, and I remember just being all in. I mean, yeah. I was all in. And if anyone had a conversation with me about politics, about the news, about the Bible, I could fill their ears with stuff that I had read. And I was sure I was right. And I remember 
I think um, it may have been my second year of college because uh, I was a, a religion major starting to see that I was in, in uh, I took a lot of philosophy classes that I was wrong and I remember when that that system started to fall apart for a minute I thought I didn't believe anything mm -hmm. I just it, it the whole I said well if 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 this is wrong then maybe my whole faith is wrong and I remember having to rebuild it and just being so deeply disoriented and uh, I'm I'm grateful for the great grace of God in that season but yeah there <laughs> there are these times and seasons when uh, and I believe it was God's grace that helped me to see it but um, yeah we should not be surprised um, by um, our ability to be misguided yeah I think Part of it is having, I mean, we talk about having a good theology, but I also think there's a sense that we just really need good anthropology. Like we need a meaning, a good understanding of what it means to be human, of how to, how to have right expectations of ourselves in terms of, you know, that we were made to have limits, that those limits aren't bad. They're not a defect. They're a design that we are weak in that that's not an insult <laughs> and and sort of just the paradox of of really walking humbly with God keeps us very very safe and and the thing that we hate most most of us about faith which is just like how how much we feel like we're fumbling around right like just how much we just feel like I just am I don't I don't know really what to do I don't I don't I don't think I'm really doing it right. I'm not, you know, some things are clear to me, but like much less than you'd expect. And that even as I'm, you know, preparing something and, and I feel a great sense of like, I don't know how else to read this scripture. I don't know. You know, this is, this is truth as, as best as I can grab it in this moment. And also I just know how, I mean, scripture is true, like just how easily deceived the human heart is and how any, any righteousness that is in me is an, a manifestation of the graciousness of, you know, is, is in spite of me, not because of me. And, and I, and the more that the righteousness of Jesus can be enough for me, right? That I don't say like, oh, Jesus loves me because I am so great. But to say like, no, Jesus loves me because Jesus loves sinners and Jesus loves messed up, broke down, hypocritical people. And and I accept and rejoice and revel, like revel in that righteousness of Jesus. And so when someone, when I when I come face to face with my own, just yuckiness, I can both grieve that and cling harder to the righteousness of Jesus. Not in a sense that like, who cares? It's just who I am. Like right. if I hurt you, that too bad for you. But in a sense of like, I do care. <laughs> I do not want to hurt you. I repent of that. I want to do better. 
and the thing that I'm building my life on and staking my hope in has not been tarnished because that wasn't me. Yeah, which I mean, is why like, the sin was me, but I yeah. was never building my life and putting my hope in my own righteousness. So discovering that I'm not righteous, I'm like, oh, yes. this isn't new news to me. I already okay. knew I was a sinner. I want to flee from it, but I'm not defensive because you're not telling me anything that I didn't know about me. So I'm going to react to it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to respond to it. I'm going to choose by the grace of God to make repair, but also I can hear it. Yeah. And this is why the current movement to remove the truth about a black history in this country is insane, right? The scripture mm -hmm. says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Part of the power of King, Martin Luther King Jr. was that he was both able to name sin in terms of racial injustice and at the same time say, you know, that does not mean the country is trash. It means um, that there, because of the God we serve, the God we know in the person of Jesus, there is hope, right? right? And there is hope for reconciliation. There's hope for justice. Let's tell the truth about what has happened and what now is, but let's also not um, fall back into uh, a despair and hopelessness that just implodes upon itself, but let's hold out hope that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is still reconciling all things right. to God's that self. Our, that our past has formed our present, but that we can have a different future, mm -hmm. and that God is at work, and that redemption is possible, and that this is not our destiny. And so the point of talking about it isn't to say, this is who you are and who you'll always be. It's to say, we, we, we of all, well, not all, white people, powerful people in this country bought into the lies of the enemy of our souls, but we can turn away from that and write a new future for everyone. For everybody. But but not not if we pretend that we've always been well. Like if you, you do you know the question is do you want to be made well? And if the answer is I already am well then, <laughs> then you're stuck, then right? You're stuck. So um, I, I think the occasion was the dedication of the temple in the Old Testament, and um, you know, there's, there, there's going to come a time when um, uh, things are not so rosy as they are right now in the nation, and when we get into a pl bad place, when we uh, leave the God we love, when we start to sin, uh, let let's remember this temple. Let's come back to God, and the Scripture says. Um, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, pray, turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and, my favorite part, heal their land. Right, right. Because again and again in the Hebrew Bible, when the people turn away from covenant and adopt the ways of the world, it is the land that cries out against them, like over and over so again. So seeing... Seeing the problem, seeing the injustice, seeing um, the violence, seeing how you are caught in it, you got to receive that. As painful as it is, you got to receive it as a point of grace. Like, mm -hmm. now I see it. It's I hard to look at. It's hard to admit. 
but there's grace in seeing it because that means there is the opportunity for repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. Right, and if the truth is my false righteousness is not who I really am, it's also true that the wretchedness that I have adopted that was not what I was made for is also not who I really am. And I think that's, you know, the the reason, and it's just ironic that we're, we are in, in in some ways, the narrative is, you know, we've always been a Judeo-Christian nation. We've always been like the city on a hill and, and all of these lies about our past aren't true. We're, we're the chosen people. I'm like, well, what the chosen people knew how to do in scripture was remember their sins against God and one another. They knew how to remember those sacred stories too. And so to say, if we really understand ourselves to be people who are in primary relationship with God, then we won't tell only the stories that celebrate us. We will tell the stories of our greatest offense against God and neighbor because we know that those stories show the also show the truth of what 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 we should have been and what righteousness would have looked like and um yeah i think that's you know that sense of knowing knowing the truth and also not being overwhelmed by it because knowing that though that was our past offense there and, and that it's formed us that we can be reformed by the goodness of god like that's where i think um with with great just compassion, I think about Aaron Bushnell is like this is this is the act of a person who who feels that there's no there's no hope, um, and certainly not for himself personally in his life. And you know, if you if you have this sense of guilt that's so overwhelming or complicity that's so high that there's no there's nothing that you can do that would be better than removing yourself from the world. Like that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that after repentance, there is hope that new life is possible. That in fact, new birth is here and now that new creation is here and that that new creation has power beyond everything that has been destructive. And that's, I think what we have to know. And I think the, the part of the body of Christ that, that does want to, try and wrestle with the truth sometimes acts like the truth of our brokenness is the high is the highest most powerful truth that there is instead of saying like yes that is that is history it's fact it needs to be named it needs to be grieved it needs to be repented of and it's worth doing all of that because there's there's something beyond there's life beyond that there is hope for goodness on this side of eternity and and we're hanging around with each other and bearing with one another in love and having like difficult uncomfortable encounters and relationships because we're believing that God is doing something with that painful faithfulness yes most Christians in this country are given a gospel that says believe in Jesus so that either when you die or he returns, you can be beamed up out of here um, and leave the planet. When you read the Bible itself, it gives a different gospel, a gospel that says believe in Jesus because he is redeeming this world. He is, he is making this, um, this broken creation new creation. 
and that makes a huge difference. Just that that difference of of uh, believe in Jesus so that I can get out of here versus believe in Jesus because he's making it all new right. makes a difference when it comes to confronting the powers and principalities and systems because if you if you're if the goal is simply to get out of here then listen there are things that we see like um, um, you know injustice when it comes to how we treat migrants and as an individual as just Yolando I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to change it. That system is too big for me. Just like um, you're a professor with investments. Like right. It's too big. I can't change that. But if I understand rightly the gospel of Jesus, who is making all things new, then my mindset can be more like um, a Desmond Tutu who said, okay, apartheid is, that system is huge. But let's let's see it rightly. It is a huge rock on the shore, and the tide is coming in and out, and we are the tide, and we will wear this rock down. Right, and I think to say the gospel just promises me that I get out of here afterwards is essentially to say I believe the ultimate power is the power of destruction, and the power of the gospel can't overcome it, at least not on this plane. And to say, like, no, I believe in the power of the gospel for goodness here and now is to say my ultimate, then ultimately I believe that the power of God's love is, is the power I trust most is the power I put my faith in to, to sort of seed creation to the powers and principalities of evil is saying by default that you think those powers and principalities of evil are stronger than, than the realm of the love of God. And I, I understand that in a human sense, but that is not the testimony of scripture. And I think, you know, that to bring full circle is the sense of like seeing everything that there is in those powers and principalities that are passing away, but like are, are going down fighting and saying my ultimate act of witness is to do something small and beautiful that won't make a difference and do it anyway. Like I'm going to buy this kid a pair of Spider-Man pajamas because goodness has value in its own sake. And it's my way of saying whatever I'm tossing well, back and, and the end, I'm lighting the it, candle. It wins the day. I'm you the cannot see it now. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome yes. it. And um, so and I think it's also saying, like, I am not going to fight the powers and principalities on their own terms. I am going to orient my life on the scale of the gospel because I, I don't accept the terms that are given to me by the powers and principalities of this world. So um, I think we should stop talking now. I think we've done a good job. For Absolutely. I mean... We could go on and on. We talked we about talking about other on. things, but I don't think we should. Uh, this time, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, thank you all so much for listening. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing uh, it at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, you can go to the website, which is deridachurch.com, D-E-R-I-T-A-C-H-U-R-C-H.com. Um, you can worship with Derida at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. You can check out um, Yolando's 
messages on the Derida YouTube channel. Not last week, though. I stunk up the joint. That's such a lie. And <laughs> no, you know, also by saying that, you're just going to draw everyone. People are going to be like, ooh, I want to see what that is <laughs> no, like. No, I stunk it up. Um, you can check out all the messages at the YouTube channel or at the Derida podcast, which is on the Podbean website. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship with The Grove at 10 a.m. on Sundays. And you can check out Grove podcast um, on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get wherever. your podcasts. Um, and The Grove YouTube channel. Uh, and you need to, there's a lot of Groves in the world so look for the one Grove Charlotte with the green tree with roots and then you will be in the right place so thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week